The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, you are a wonderful Savior. We deserve as sinners to be handed over to our desires, to our sins. We, we deserve to feel the full results of sin. We deserve to be separated from you. We deserve you to say yes to our sinful desires and to turn us loose to death and destruction. That's what we deserve. But you have loved us. You have loved us. You've loved us because you've loved us. So you sent your son to die on a cross for us, to pay for our sins, to stand in our place, to make us clean, washed white and pure before you. And you raised him from the dead for our justification that we might stand with all of his approval before you. What a wonderful thought. And yet, um, tomorrow's Monday, and I'm still walking around in this body of death. We still need you. We still need you to come and to save us. I thank you that you have given us your spirit who preaches to us that you are indeed our Father, that we can cry out to you tomorrow on Monday, Abba, Father. And yet, even still, we need you. We need you to come to rescue us, to take us to you. So until then, we live in a time of war, not a time of peace. So I pray that you would take your word this morning and you would arm us with your word. That you would take your truth and you would help us to see and understand and give assent to the truth about the times that we live in and the times that are to come. And I pray, Lord, I, I pray for myself and I pray for each person here that, that would, you, would you more tightly frame our lives with the truth of the cross and the truth of your soon return. 
Would you frame our today with yesterday and tomorrow? Would you grant us grace to understand this reality of deception and what deception is after? To give us freedom from it. To give us freedom from deception and true hope. Real, strong, abiding hope. So Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Not me, not any other human, only you. So would you come Holy Spirit now and preach. Preach the sermon to our hearts. Preach Christ to us. Let us see him and rejoice in him and hope in him. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. It's the last of the books of the New Testament named after a city. If you're unfamiliar with where it is in your Bible, 2 Thessalonians. You got to Timothy, you went too far. 2 Thessalonians. We'll be looking today at chapter 2. Several months ago, seems like a long time ago, we were in 2 Thessalonians 1, and today we'll be looking at chapter 2. There was a striking moment recently when the apologist Ravi Zacharias spoke here in Salt Lake City. He said, in the context of talking about Hitler and Stalin, something to the effect of, isn't it amazing, isn't it striking how one man can lead so many to evil? Isn't it amazing how one man can lead millions to believe a lie? Isn't it striking? Isn't it striking how one man can deceive so many? And it is. Isn't it striking how strong delusion can be? How thoroughly deception can work so that Stalin's communists could deceive entire Eastern Bloc nations? How Hitler's lies could sway an entire country to do such, such evil things? Just two generations ago, mind you. Not that long ago. Isn't it striking how one man can lead millions, millions to believe a lie and lead them astray? Millions here. Isn't it striking? And the problem is not just out there, it's, it's in here. It's in here. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, isn't it striking some of the things that you once believed about Christ? <laughs> isn't, isn't it striking uh, some of the things that you used to believe about how the world works and about what God is up to in your life? Perhaps even, isn't it striking the before and the after of how you view your world since Steve began and has now ended finishing uh, preaching through First and Second Samuel? Isn't it striking how we can believe lies. Isn't it striking how strong deception can work? And isn't it striking how destructive deception can be? The names Hitler and Stalin, just two people in history, just two. And yet tens of millions of people can trace their early terror-filled deaths back to those two people. Isn't it striking? Yet again, we need not look that far back. You probably know a family member, a friend, or a coworker who has made shipwreck of their life because they took hold of one small deception and it led them to destruction. 
Deception is real, and it is powerful, and it is destructive. And yet, isn't it something, isn't it striking how powerful the truth can be? Perhaps you've seen the, the before and after pictures of, of German citizens smiling and laughing as they're being led to the concentration camps right outside their towns and the terror-stricken faces of horror as they leave. The truth is powerful. The passage we're going to look at today, frankly, freaks people out. <laughs> it does. There's some stuff in here that people really struggle over, and they struggle over it, and they stop. We don't go any further, and when we don't go any further, we stop to see the true message that Paul was trying to communicate to the Thessalonians, and then he wants us to hear as we, as we overhear this conversation, the truth about what deception is doing in the world today and what the stakes are and how, how much we need to hold on to the truth, to the truth. As we will see in the text today, we live in a time of war, and the primary weapon that our enemy uses is deception. Deception. And, and therefore, in order to endure to the end, we must hold fast to the truth, the truth of the gospel. The, the gospel, it, yes, it, it is the, the means, the, the entrance to salvation, but the gospel is the thing that we must hold on to in order to be saved to the end, to endure to the end. The gospel is for you every moment, every second of your life until the very end. It is the means by which we endure, by which we endure deception we live in a time of war, and the enemy is constantly lobbing arrows of deception at you, Christian, and at you, unbeliever. <clears throat> this is precisely what the Thessalonians were seeking to do. I, I'm going to read uh, chapter 2 of Second, Second Thessalonians in its entirety because the burden of the chapter really comes in verse 15 towards the end. So we're going to walk through the chapter because I want you to see the first part of the chapter in its context. Because again, a lot of people read the first part and freak out, don't know what to do with it, and think that Paul has given this to us just to create eschatological timelines about the end times or form theological teams when in fact he is out for your hope, Christian. He is out to feed your hope. He is out to arm you, arm you, against the reality of deception today. <clears throat> so, 2 Thessalonians 2. Actually, I'm going to start reading at the end of chapter 1. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be too quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do it until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. The Thessalonians were clinging to the gospel because they were a people under duress and distress. The gospel they believed said that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and that He was King of kings and Savior of all. Therefore, not Caesar, who actually, if you can picture this, actually had a temple in Thessalonica, Caesar did, where, complete with priests, and sacrifices where he himself was worshipped as God. Caesar, a man. Caesar was worshipped there and was extolled as Savior of all. So when Paul comes with the gospel and this new church springs up, they are praising someone else, not Caesar, this Jesus of Nazareth as Savior of all. And the city leaders saw this, these new Christians as a threat, and they, they feared that their city's special privileges with Rome would be revoked because these Christians worshipped somebody else, not Caesar. The resulting persecution and affliction were fierce. We read in 1 Thessalonians, we can, depending on how we interpret it, that perhaps someone in the church actually died as a result of this persecution. The Thessalonians wrote to Paul concerned that this dead brother or sister was going to miss the resurrection. So Paul writes back in the letter we know as 1 Thessalonians to reassure them, no, 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 that, that person actually, he, he will beat you to Christ. The, when the Christ returns in the sky, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us who are left alive will join them with him. So, so don't, don't worry about that one, Christians. He'll be just fine. All will be well. Um, so don't worry. 
and, and by the way, he says, encourage each other with this truth. Encourage each other with this truth. And Paul says, don't, don't track the days and the times and the seasons. Don't even, don't even go there. Because the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the time when Jesus returns and renders judgment on the earth and brings us to himself, the day of the Lord the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, he says in chapter 5, verse 2, catching everybody by surprise. And Paul there is just repeating the words of Christ himself from Matthew 24. No, no, no. The application of this doctrine is not to track the seasons, but to live soberly, Paul says, expectantly, as in a time of war, with faith and love as your, your breastplate. Chapter 5, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians, as your breastplate. And put on as your helmet, as the arrows of your enemy rain down on you, arrows of deception, where as a helmet, the hope of your salvation, the hope of your salvation. The Thessalonians would endure in the battle today by holding fast to their hope in Christ tomorrow. So then somebody tweaked Paul's message just a, just a bit. Someone decided that since Christ could return at any time, that means that he will return immediately, like next week or next month. He definitely will. Someone jumped from point A to point B, which was not Paul's point. So this shook them for reasons we will see. So Paul writes this second letter to them. Now, in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, he encourages them in their afflictions, reminding them that, that, that Christ uh, is coming for them and that when he comes, their afflictions will actually be evidence on that day that, that, they, should, that they are in him, that they will stand right and be united with him forever. Christ will return for them soon. So in anticipation of this day, Paul prays for them at the end of chapter 1, that God would cause ideas to occur to them, verse 11. God would cause ideas to occur to, to them and to us of how to glorify Christ with their life as they go about their ordinary life, ordinary moments of life, that Christ really would be glorified when he returns. He, he prays then that God would, as they step out, that God would fulfill those, those acts that God would fulfill those desires and those desires acted upon and actually cause them to really amount to glory for the name of Christ when he returns. So God provides the ideas to occur to us, and as we step out, God is the one that causes them to amount to glory for his Son. What God requires of us, God provides for us. God is out to glorify his Son through us by giving us a resolve for that glory and then by fulfilling that resolve. And he glorifies his son so that he may glorify us in him. So again, the Thessalonians heard from someone then that, that Christ was as good as here. He's that close. He's just come into town and he's just called on the phone and he's three blocks away, essentially. Um, and what? We've got to clean up that. There's no time. There's no time for anything. There's no time for now for bringing glory to his name. What? What? You see, the Thessalonians were shaken because they actually had a full hope in Christ. 
that their minds were set. They actually believed the gospel that Paul told them, that their glory was still to come. And then they hear this, and what? I, I'm not, I don't have any time to actually do anything that, that amounts to his glory because he's, what, a week? You see, they, they were shaken. They were alarmed. Imagine how you would feel if you had a presentation to give and it was going to take a month to prepare and then someone said, oh, by the way, it's, we're doing it at 3 o'clock today. <laughs> what? That's how they felt. That's the sense of, of has come in verse 2. It's not that Jesus has come already and then gone again. The sense is that he's as good as here. He's just two blocks away. So uh, they, were, they were alarmed. They were shaken in mind, verse 2. So Paul settles their minds in verses 3 through 8. And I'm going to walk through these verses, but... Uh, Paul's essential point in these verses is this. Yes, Christ can come at any time. That is, that's true. What I told you before is true. But a few terrible things have to happen first. A few terrible things have to happen. Yes, time is short, but the time you have is sufficient for bringing glory to God. Time, yes, time is short, but the time you have is sufficient for bringing glory to God. Now, those, those few terrible things in verses 3 through 8 have been open to great controversy over the years a lot. A lot of ink has been spilled about this stuff. And I'm going to tell you where my conscience allows me to land on Paul's meaning, where I think I'm giving Paul the fairest hearing based on the context of the letter. Um, so, Paul says, there will be a singular rebellion and with this rebellion, there will come a man of lawlessness. But don't worry, verse 3, he, he's a son of destruction, Paul says right out of the gate. He, he'll be destroyed. But he will come with such pride, such arrogance, that he will work against and place himself over every other so-called God on the face of the earth. That, that, that temple down the street, Thessalonians, where, where you, you walk by every day on the way to work, where you see and you hear... Caesar being worshipped as a god, that's kind of your, your template, but it won't be anything like that. He, he'll place himself over every god of this world. He'll be that arrogant. So remember, Thessalonians, I'm not telling you, verse 5, I'm not telling you anything novel here. I'm not innovating. I'm our, there's, a little, there's a little hint of impatience with Paul here. He's told them the truth, and now they're quickly being shaken from it. I, I'm not innovating. I'm telling you, just, I'm just repeating what I told you before. So now in verse 6, the word restraining in the original language can mean to take hold of in order to hold back. It can mean that, restrain. That's where the, the ESV gets the word restrain. Um, but it can just as well mean to take hold of, to possess, to have. That's actually in the word possess or have, as in possess something like demon possession. We think about that. And we read later in verse 9 that this man of lawlessness comes by the power, the activity of Satan himself. So I believe that that's the sense leading up to verse 9. Not that there's one party restraining this party, but that there is one party working, working throughout history to possess this one and to bring him to the fore. Satan working throughout history, throughout history for de, through deception 
to bring this man of lawlessness finally at the right time, according to him, to the fore and to deceive everyone. That's what Satan's up to. That's what this is about. That's what's going on in all of history. After all, Paul says, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Just look at Caesar. Just look at Hitler. Just look at Stalin. Just look at how one man can deceive and lead millions of people astray. It's already happening. It started in the garden. Did God really say? It's already at work. And when he is revealed, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with his coming. Verse 8. And then we will rise with him and be with him forever. A few terrible things must happen before Christ returns. It will get worse, the worst, and then it will get absolutely perfect. Why? Why, why can't Christ just come now? Why, why the, the terrible things? Because God must exercise his sovereign justice, verses 9 through 12. This lawless one must, will come, and he will come by the working of Satan the deceiver, verse 9. He will, he will parody Christ with false signs and wonders, aping the coming of Jesus. And yet, this is all for a purpose. L lest you think that Satan, Thessalonians, is acting autonomously like the malevolent dark side of, of Star Wars. Not at all. There is a God, and He is sovereign over everything. Everything. All this deception is not for you, Christians. It's for those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 10. Because of this, verse 11, God sends them, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This is the first time you're reading this. It's probably shocking to you. But this is what God is doing at the end of the age, even now. The purpose of this is so that what was in their hearts, their love of unrighteousness, their pleasure in unrighteousness, their lack of love for the truth may be revealed. And that God's judgment on that day will be seen to be just. God judges by sending a delusion to believe lives based on whether or not a person loves the truth. So, stand back and, and see just how sovereign this God is, even over the working of Satan throughout all, all of history. When you, when you come across someone who, who believes firmly something that you think is just crazy, if, if, you only could, if you only could see this, let me, let me show you. If only you could understand this, then you would see it, how crazy it is what you believe. The problem may not be intelligence. In fact, it's probably not intelligence. It's not that the person is dumb or stupid or out of their mind. Behold, stand back and see what, what is happening is a fearful thing. The judgment of God. And God judges by giving delusion. Stand back in fear of it, not, in, not over the person, not in arrogance of the person, but in awe of what God is doing. And stand in awe of His grace to you, His amazing grace. 
This is not for you, Thessalonians. You will never know this judgment of delusion from the hand of God. Why? Verse 13, because you are loved by the Lord. Why are you loved? Because you're loved by Him. Why did He love you? Because He loved you. Why? Because He wanted to. And because He loved you, He chose you for salvation. Why? Because of His love, because of His grace. Not because you're different, but because God. (laughs) That's why. He loved you and He chose you. He left nothing of your salvation to chance. So He gave you your spirit. He gave you the spirit to sanctify you and faith in the gospel. Even this faith is a gift. For, for it, is, it is God who gave Paul the Macedonian call and, and sent him to Thessalonica to, 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 to preach to you Thessalonians, Paul says. But, but note this, and this, this is so central to the point of the passage. It's why I'm taking all this time to, to get to this point, to verse 14. This is lovely. I pray that God would let you see it. God's purpose in all of this is actually not to save you. Do, do you know that, Christian? Do, do you know that God's purpose in, in sending His Son to the cross was actually, yes, it was to save you. I'm saying that to shock you a little bit so, so you'll see here. To save you, but that saving was, was for a purpose. That you would, verse 14, His saving you is not just to clean you up, and, you know, to, to shape you up, to sanctify you just because you, you're so bad and He wants you to you know, clean you up and look better. His purpose was so that you would obtain. Another way to translate this would be possess. That you would have the glory of Christ. Yes, Christ will be glorified in us, but then we will possess this glory with Him. This is the hope to which every Christian has been saved. This is the hope of the gospel. That when Christ returns, He will be glorified in us, but oh, we will possess His glory. This is beautiful. So stand back and just, just, just for a second, take in the, the love of God in Christ for you, Christian. How complete it is. There are no gaps. There are no holes. God does it all for you. He will. He promises to do it all for you. Out of this love, He will return for you and you will possess all His glory. All by His grace because He loved you. Why? Because He loved you. So behold the awful judgment and grace of God. Grace that has come to you, Christian, by the gospel. What a a glorious truth. How precious is this truth, this, this gospel. This gospel is the the thing by which that hope, that glory comes to you, Christian. How precious it is. So hold on to it, verse 15. Hold on to the traditions, the doctrines of the gospel. And and since God is the one, actually, who will actually enable you to hold on, verse 16, I will pray to God for you. (laughs) Commanding you to hold on, and as you go to hold on, I will pray for you that God will actually cause you and enable you to hold on to the gospel. (laughs) That's the text. The the burden of the passage is not end times imagery or to, again, to to split us up into theological teams for debate. 
but to turn us back to this hope we have in the gospel, to fix our minds there, to wear it as a helmet in this time of war against the, the arrows of deception from our enemy. So the, the big point that I'm, that I'm working towards this morning and in, in the time that I have is, is this. Deception aims to shake us from our hope. Deception aims to shake us from our hope, so we must hold strong to the truth of the gospel. Deception aims to shake us from our hope, so we must hold strong to the truth of the gospel. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work off those two words this morning, hope and deception, my two points, hope and deception. We must hold fast to the truth of the gospel because of the realities of hope and deception. The first word is hope. first point is this. The Christian is saved to a glorious hope. Christian is saved to a glorious hope. I pray that, uh, regardless of what I say, I, I pray that God would open our eyes and open our minds and give us grace to actually see what those two words really mean right now, as best we can from this perspective. Glorious hope. We must hold fast to the gospel because we are saved to a glorious hope. The, the, the question I've, I've asked of the text is, what, what were the Thessalonians shaken from in verse 2? It says they were, they were shaken in mind and alarmed. From what? The question goes to something assumed in the text about the Thessalonians and, and isn't so true of us. They were shaken from their hope. Their reaction feels foreign to us because these are Christians who are filled to the gills with hope. It's because they were filled with hope that they were so shaken with this deception. And we, we modern Americans, however, we read this and we say, well, that's a big deal. What? What? Why all this? They quit their jobs? What? That's because we, we're weak in hope. They were filled with it. We have trouble with the concept. So, what, what is gospel hope? It is decidedly future. It is then. It is not now. Yes, do, do we have hope that God would do things in this life? Yes, yes, of course. But our hope is future. And it is glory. It is glory. As Paul said to the Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what is this glory? We get a hint of it in chapter 1, verse 12. Paul prays there that God would fulfill their every good work, their, their, their every idea, and then when they go step out on that idea, that they would actually, God would actually fulfill that to actually make it count for what? The name, the glory of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. His name, His fame. And that His name, the fame of His name would grow through us. Now, which kind of begs the question, how can God be more glorified in us? 
And when, when he returns, we will see his radiance, his power. You, you, you will see it with your eyes. And you're not going to add anything to that. <laughs> not a bit. And we will see his purity. And we certainly won't add anything to that. But on that day, his glory will grow through us in the sense that his fame will grow as all the world sees just how worth it he was. Just how, just how worth it he was every time you, you said no to sin and yes to him in anticipation of that day. No, I'm going to say no to that because I want you, Lord. I want, to, I want to taste more of you. I don't want to dull anything of my, of my faculty of taste by, by indulging in this. Every time you did that, that will be brought forward and he will be seen to have been worth it. And all the world will see it. All the world will see it. Every time you, 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 you did not indulge in, in bitterness or resentment, but, but forgave in anticipation of that day. And, and, and thanks for what he did for you on the cross. His fame will, that, that will be brought forward and his fame will grow. Every time you endured, every time you kept going despite your afflictions, despite your pain, despite persecution, despite injury, Despite trial and trouble, you, you put one foot in front of the other and you kept going towards him, towards that day. Every step will be brought forward and his fame will grow and all the world will see how worth it he was. They'll see it in your face and in him. You will add to his glory. Isn't that something? <laughs> You, you will add to his glory. And he will look at you, Christian, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master. The face that should have been looking at you with wrath is now looking at you with all of the approval that it looks at his own son with. He will smile at you and you will see it and you will know that he was worth it. You will enter into all the, all the pleasures and the joys that the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit had enjoyed for eternity past. You will enjoy them. You will possess them for all eternity in the future. You will stand there, not, not, you know, we, it's hard to understand because in this life we, we think about possessing glory as, you know, like the guys that, the, that score the soccer goals, you know, and they run to the corner of the field and they, hey, look at me, you know. It, that's what we, how we think about this and that's the only way we can think about this. But you will stand there possessing his glory with the humility of a little child Basking in the, in the glories of your Father. This perfect Father for you. Oh. Amazing. You, you will see Him taking pleasure in you. 
and you will be infinitely humbled by it and infinitely full of joy by it. Humbled because you... Yes. Yes. That's why. I see that that's the basis upon which you, you are taking such pleasure in me, Father. But it will all be yours. You will see that you have pleased God entirely. You, by the gracious work of Christ on the cross for you, in your place. It will be perfect. <laughs> perfect. More perfect than we can even imagine. Perfect is kind of too small of a word. And in His pleasure, he, he will cause us to obtain, to possess those things that we cannot add to, that, that radiance, that purity. We will possess them with Christ because we will be the bride that will be married to the Lamb. And based upon this marriage, the husband will share everything with the bride. Everything. This is glory. It will all be by His unmerited favor to you through the truth of the gospel. By faith in that truth. It's, I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I've, pre I've prepared all week for this and it's still too much to take in at once. Amazing. And it's true. And it is the hope that the Christian gospel saves people too. That this is it. It's coming soon. So we need to ask ourselves, was I actually saved to this hope? Is this actually part of my gospel? Is this, was I saved to this hope? It's coming soon, and this, this hope is meant to define and frame our lives today. You, you've probably heard the old phrase, you know, some Christians are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I, I don't think that's really the problem with us. I've heard D.A. Carson say that the problem is we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good, and our minds are not, not ever focused on that day, on the pursuit of that glory. And yet it is part of our gospel, and it is coming soon. That day, that day is coming. Our hopes, our, our problem is our hopes don't rise above the horizon of this life. But this gospel promises us that glory by grace. We're meant to be saved to this hope. So God's purpose for saving you, Christian, is that glory. That moment when you, when you eat of the, from the tree of life and, and you are wholly satisfied in Him. Wholly satisfied. And, and, and then that, that satisfaction will become normal to you. And then you will discover more riches, more glories in Christ and, and, and you will satiate your soul with, with, those, with those glories. And then, and then those glories will become, believe it or not, normal. <laughs> and then you will, you will discover more glories in Christ. And you will satiate yourself. And it will go on like this for eternity. 
your increasing ever satisfaction in Christ. God's goal for you is your total never-ending satisfaction in His satisfaction of you. This is, this is not some like, disembodied glory that is completely disconnected from your desires here and now. Do, do you know that? No, that day is meant to satisfy all of those desires, especially the ones that, that get awakened by, by trial and affliction. The, the desire for intimate love that, that you, you, you try to satisfy with that, with that novel or that TV show, it, it will be satisfied completely forever then. That glorified body that you seek to have now, you will get it then. That hunger that you feed with food or your, or your newest possession or, or sex or ambition, you will be filled. That hunger will be filled then. It will. That longing for approval, that longing to be counted for something, to be held in pure high esteem, you will experience it then. Isn't that striking? Isn't that something? You will have it then, all by the grace of God, all by the blood of Christ, if you love the truth. If you love the truth. I suspect most of us here know the truth of the gospel. Even if you learned something new today, you still say, yeah, I pretty much know the gospel. Do you love it? Do you love it? Have you seen the bankruptcy of your own soul and, and found your only place of hope and freedom and rest at the foot of the cross, the blood-drenched foot of the cross? Have you seen that your life much as you thought it was, it was actually leading you to death. Have you seen that? And have you, have you realized that you needed to lose it and find it there in the life of Christ given for you? Have you found this most infinite treasure of all the universe, the forgiveness of all your sins, and the smile of God upon you in Christ? Do you have that? If you do, you will love it. You will. No, no one will have to tell you. Paul doesn't command anybody here to love it. You will love it because he loved you first. You love it. Don't you love it, Christian? I mean, isn't it something? And so, some, some of you I sat on couches and talked to you about the gospel, and we, I can see the, the twinkle in, in your eye, and I can... I hope you see a twinkle in mind about this. this. You're just talking about somebody you love. Don't you love it? Then hold on to it, Paul says. Hold on to it. Hold on to this thing that you love. Don't let it go. Don't let it go because deception is real. And this leads us to the second point. Deception is possible for the Christian and destructive to our hope. Deception is possible for the Christian and destructive to our hope. You can be deceived. 
It is possible. You can be deceived. A true Christian will not be destroyed by deception. That's Paul's point of verses 13 through 17. But you can be deceived and robbed of your hope. You can, and dare I say, you are. You are. This is tragic for a Christian. This is tragic because the Christian life, as Paul often says, is a three-legged stool. One of faith, one of hope, and love. We are unstable, shaken, wobbly, because we have allowed deception to rob us of the hope that rightfully belongs to you, Christian. The reason why we are emotionally unstable is that we are first unstable in our minds. The, the, verse 2, the quickly shaken in our minds. Our problem is not first our emotions, it's what's going on in our minds. Our minds are not fixed upon the, our hope in Christ which was made possible by our faith in the cross of Christ, our todays are messed up because in our minds we have yesterday and tomorrow messed up. We've been deceived into thinking that the cross was to make our lives better now. And His return is just for His glory and our judgment. We've bought the lie that the cross is all about us and that Christ's return is all about Him. But both are about His glory and our eternal, infinite blessing in Him being glorified. A Christian can grow in discernment and maturity, and yet we will only be impervious to deception after Christ destroys this man of lawlessness. Until then, your hope is tied to the truth, and your enemy therefore aims to, to sever your tie to that truth. The mystery of lawlessness began with did God really say in the garden and so it continues today. It is possible for you to be deceived. So we must hold strongly to the gospel. We, we never graduate from the gospel because Christ has not yet returned. We are not impervious to deception and it can be subtle as in the case of the Thessalonians. Uh, the arrows flying through the air from our enemy aimed at our heads at our minds. They don't, they don't have a banner behind them, you know, that says, by the activity and power of Satan. They're subtle. Sometimes deception comes under the heading of spirit, claiming to be prophecy. Sometimes it comes through slick fraud. Sometimes it's sitting on the end cap at Lifeway with a colorful cover that says that the kid's story is being made into a movie. Sometimes it comes in the form of a sermon from a skilled and winsome preacher. Now, we don't look for deception out of arrogance. I think I need to say this. Just because we are discerning does not mean that we are being arrogant, that we are placing ourselves over something. No. No, we're just exercising a holy impatience with anything that would rob us of our hope, that would deceive us and rob us of that precious thing. The Thessalonians believed a subtle deception about time. Paul's point to them was that, yes, time is short, and yet it is sufficient. So the question is, do, do we need to hear that? We who in our culture count boredom as a sin and busyness as sainthood? 
think so. Perhaps you are younger and you, you lean toward the deception that there is plenty of time. That there's, there's plenty of time to recover from this binge or from taking time off from the Lord during this period, during this stretch. That's a time problem. A deception about time. You, you think that time is plentiful, but it is not. Christ can return any time for you to possess glory. For you to possess glory. Do you see that? The time is short for you to engage in the pursuit of glory. To live your life today in the hope of Christ's return is actually the same thing as, as living your life today in the pursuit of glory and satisfaction. I'll say that again. To, to live your life today in the pursuit of of, of the increase of the fame of Christ's name is the same thing as pursuing glory and satisfaction. <clears throat> the deception is that you need to take glory and satisfaction into your own hands instead of waiting upon Christ. A life lived this way demonstrates a pleasure in unrighteousness and not a love for the truth, verse 12. You love the truth. Hold fast to it. Let your today be defined by it. So some repentance is probably in order. Um, is there anything you take pleasure in that immediately afterwards you cannot immediately look God in the face for and say thank you? Is there anything like that in your life? Yes, re repent of that. Not, not out of legalism, but, but out of a hope of glory. And then turn from spending that time in, in whatever that is to spending time in His Word in the Gospel with other Christians. Other Christians that you know will encourage you who, who seem to just, the Gospel just kind of falls out of their mouth. Exercise this hope. Find some way to exercise this hope instead of that thing. Seek to fill your soul with hope in what is coming to you. If you want to dig deeper on this, I have found C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, to be very helpful in this. I would commend it to you. And do you see how, how living for glory and satisfaction in, in the only true place where they are found will also grant you a rest today, a, a stability that perhaps you've never known. Perhaps you are older and you know, no one has to tell you that time is shorter. Your concern is that there is not enough time left to really bring glory to God. Perhaps you look back at wasted time. Know that your king is full of grace and mercy, and he is not limited by time at all. The time you have is sufficient for bringing glory to his name. Because he's sufficient. Whatever time you have is sufficient, no matter what's past. He is full of grace and mercy. He's sufficient. So pray to him, ask him to give you ideas and step out on those ideas that he would fulfill them. Perhaps you're somewhere in the middle, raising kids and working your career, and you feel caught between both deceptions. That on the one hand, yeah, there's still plenty of time in life for God and for getting this right and changing that. And yet on the other hand, there's no time for anything. Like, 
eating or bathing or sleeping. <laughs> um, we, we live in a tension between these two truths. The time is short and the time is sufficient. The shortness of time means we should live with an urgency to our lives. Today matters. Today matters for His glory, for our glory. Today matters. We should live as though He is returning now and be doing the things that would please Him if He returned now. Following the ideas that occur to us to, to bring honor to His name. But the time that He gives you is sufficient for the pursuit of glory. For the pursuit of glory. Do you, do you get that? The time you have is sufficient for the pursuit of His glory. Our trouble is not the amount of time that we have, but what glories we pursue. We pursue many, many counterfeit glories, things that are really all about earthly glory that only have their horizons here. Our homes, our kids, bonus structure, the next step at work, whatever it is. I'm not saying don't work hard at your marriage, your kids, or your job, but I'm asking you, what is the hope that drives you? Is it that glory? Is it that glory that, that defines your priorities and your time today? I'm certain that the more we understand all that God holds for us on that day and how He is working today to create glory for that day, we will suddenly find many things are not so urgent. Not so urgent. And we will discover a, a new urgency for the fame of the name of Christ my first priority for my children will not be uh, whatever, all the many things that, I, that we spend time on with our children, but that they would glorify Christ. This goes for our neighborhoods, our neighbors, or this church. As you live in the tension between the shortness of time and the sufficiency of time, you will find a new urgency and a new rest. This rest may be one of the most powerful evangelistic tools you have besides the actual words of the gospel. As your children and friends see it, this rest will adorn the words of the gospel with an alien hope that everybody wants. Everybody wants this. Christian, you have it. You can. Remember, many years ago, we had a Bible study and a, and a fellow began to be awakened to the things of Christ, didn't go to our church, friend of a friend of a friend, and shows up and starts going through Romans with us. And One day he says, I just love hanging out with you guys. First I was like, oh, well, that's nice. And he's like, well, it's not actually you. <laughs> but it's that when I'm around you guys, I, I realize, like, in, in reading Romans, like, it's going to be Okay. I mean, and he, brother's name is Flavio. I love that name, Flavio. Flavio was going through rough stuff. Rough stuff. And he said, I, I know a lot of this isn't going to change. I, I, I understand that. But I'm getting that in Christ, it is okay. Because it will be perfect. It will be okay. Like, I see that. I don't just hear that. I see it. I see the... It's wonderful. To which I just praised God for. <laughs> that it wasn't us. 
Deception is subtle and dangerous because it robs us of seeing just how for us God is in Christ. It robs us of seeing just how lavish His grace is to us. So we must hold firm to the gospel, humbly remembering that we are not impervious to deception. We need to return again and again to those old passages, those old well-worn pages where a lot of your finger oils have darkened the page. We need to go back to those pages and preach them to ourselves again and again. For me, lately, that's been Romans 8 and Colossians, if you'd like to know. could be anywhere. We need to go back to those passages and preach them to ourselves. Perhaps there needs to be some repentance. A repentance of dissatisfaction with the Word. You ever found yourself dissatisfied with how God wrote His Bible? Like, couldn't you just do like a theological outline, just like a step-by-step, you know? And that dissatisfaction keeps us from actually being fed by it. And it, it opens us up to deception. It opens us up to wanting more to being drawn to that book or that that preacher that actually does mangle the gospel we need to repent of that satisfaction and sit at the foot of christ through his word like a humble child after all that's how we will stand before him on that day in rapturous awe of him of all of his grace to us And He will stand over you, Christian, not with the look of wrath, but with delight in you. Because you are His son or His daughter. Because Christ died for you. Because Christ died for you and you got this white, pure robe by which to stand before Him. All because of what Christ did. All because of His grace. All because of His own glory. And all because of His grace, He will have you possess, share that glory forever. So Christians, hold on to these truths. He's coming soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if there is in anyone here this morning a new resolve to hold to your truth, I pray, would you be the one to enable it? Would you yourself, the way you, God, walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden, would you, Lord Jesus, yourself come? Comfort us. Share with us your glory. And until then, would you send your Spirit to preach to us that we are sons and daughters, and that you are our Father, that you are a perfect Father, that you always keep your promises. When you keep these promises, it will all be perfect. Would you preach this to us and cause us to believe it? Cause us to, our lives, our lives today to be framed by yesterday and tomorrow by the cross and your soon return. Who is sufficient for these things? 
Only you. So would you come and do this, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.